Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero. I come to you every week from our studio in Dallas, Texas. Quick housekeeping. Thank you very much for the reviews and the support of the podcast. I have to tell you, it's growing exponentially. We're getting hundreds and hundreds of downloads of each episode. And just think three weeks ago, we started with zero. So I want to thank everybody. Keep the message going, though. Do me a favor. Please share it. Please subscribe. Please review. It means a lot to us. It's the fuel that keeps us engaged in doing this podcast. On today's podcast, I have my friend and my number one salesperson, Tim Baser, in the studio with us. Before I introduce Tim and get his mic live, you need to understand something. The word friend is far more important to me than the concept of number one salesperson. You just need to understand that, that at some point in your career, the idea of it's just business stops. I just don't believe that that really is how total success happens. At some point, there has to be an emotional care between two people, five people, 10 people, 20 people at some point. And that bullshit about, well, it's just business really never works for me. And so Tim is the epitome of that, that Tim is not just our number one salesperson in our office, but Tim is my friend. So welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for jumping on. My man, we got so much to talk about because I wanted you to come on the podcast for one reason. The podcast is designed to help people figure out how the hell do they get to the next step in their money situation. Everybody needs more money. Would you agree with that? I think so, yeah. I think everybody needs more money. I'm just so damn positive of that. I don't know anybody who says they need, they don't need more money. Right. The only person that says they don't need more money is somebody who doesn't have enough money and they've given up. The people who have aspirations and potential and goals and wishes and the fact that they're not operating for themselves anymore and they're operating for other people realize that more money makes all that happen easier. So I wanted you to come on because you've been with this company almost 17 years. Yep. It's hard to believe, right? Yeah. We were talking about that the other day. And when you give the audience a little bit of history, when you started with the company, you answered an ad out of the Dallas Morning News. Yep. Some people may not have any idea that actually we hired and people placed employment ads in the newspaper and people answered those ads. And that's how you came to me. Yeah. 2001. Tell, what would you do? You remember the day? Uh, yeah, it was, um, well, I don't remember the actual date. I know I started on September 4th, but it was, uh, maybe a Thursday or Friday. I saw an ad in the paper and I had people telling me that, Hey, I think you'd be good at sales. And I saw an ad in the paper that said low commission, high opportunity. So I came in, you interviewed me and high commission, high opportunity. Yeah. Right? High commission, <laughs> low base, low, low base. That's what it was. No, no base. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. so true. And so, so you came on board. Your first day was September 4th. We remember it like it was yesterday because that was 2001. Yep. Right before 9-11. Right before 9-11, right when Rocky was pregnant with Johnny Boy mm-hmm. and ready to pop. And you start on the 4th, September 11th, I believe it was a Tuesday. And Johnny Boy was born that Saturday. So your first or really your second week on the job, we have two planes hit skyscrapers. Almost 3,000 people die, and you say, what's going to happen to me? Yeah, I had no idea. had no idea if people were, because all I was doing was making calls. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if anybody wanted to answer the phone. I sure thought nobody wanted to borrow money. <laughs> right but, after September 11th. Yeah, right after September 11th. If I was calling people, you know, it's not saying, hey, how are you doing? It's, 
how are you going to overcome? And luckily, a bunch of people were still stepping up to the plate knowing, hey, you know, this happened, but we got to rebuild. We got to move forward. And optimism. Yeah. You got to be optimistic about it. Boy, I wasn't optimistic. I'm telling you, when I was sitting in the hospital room, Rocky had had John at like 1130 on Saturday night. And I remember being in the hospital room on Monday with holding my new baby, my wife recovering from the pre- from the birth. And is the is it gonna is it gonna recover? I remember watching the television that Monday from the room saying, "What's gonna happen? Is the stock market gonna reopen? I mean, it, it, are we gonna survive? Is the business gonna make it? Is the economy gonna make it? Is are there more terrorist attacks? I mean, it was a crazy time, mm-hmm. you know. But in your mind. Certainly you were thinking about that, but the other piece of it was, how am I going to pull this thing off, man? How am I going to make this new career change work? Yeah. I mean, I I guess I was lucky then. I was 26 years old, so I didn't have the big point of view of what was going on in the entire world, but I knew America was going to come back. Mm, That's good. So I was very optimistic that it may take a year, it may take two years, who knows how long, Mm -hmm. but we weren't going to sit around and you know not be America. What were you doing um, before you answered that ad? Uh, selling oil and gas on the phone. But then you were also at Southwestern Bell, yep. right? Which is now AT&T. Yep. I was there for two years doing lease rollover asset computers, all mm-hmm. that nonsense. But you wouldn't have considered yourself a sales guy? No, no sales experience at all. So did you want to be a sales guy or did you just want to make more money? Um, I wanted to make more money. And also, like I said before, people told me that I, I had the personality to be in sales. How much were you making at that time? Do you remember? 35,000 a year. 35 grand. Yeah. But you were, you were kind of a single guy. I mean, you and Marcy had just gotten together. Marcy is Tim's wife and you guys had just gotten together, right? So you weren't quite, I mean, you were single, but you were in a relationship. Yes. But you were, I mean, dude, you, you know, you, you had the Jeep. I mean, you were, you were, you were, life was still pretty good on 40 grand a year or whatever it was. It was a $30,000 millionaire. Just like everybody else in Dallas. <laughs> Everybody else all over the place. What's funny is 17, 16 years later, not much has changed. No, not much has changed at all. Now you're a $45,000 millionaire, right? Um, And all that time later, how much will you make this year, you think? Do you want me to say that live? Yeah. Um, I think I'm probably going to make maybe $1.1 million. $1.1 million in personal income. What's your college background, Tim? Two years. Associate's degree? Associate's degree. In what? Project management, construction. The point is that- nothing to do with finance. Nothing to do with finance. I mean, I got to take the audience back for a minute. I mean, you have to understand, we were in this dumpy little office and Tim and I worked basically across from each other in two desks and uh, Amanda, our office manager, was to the left of us. And then we, did we even have sales, other people in the yeah, office? Yeah, there was like six or seven other guys. There were? For like three months. Who'd we have? Like we had Woody and Bill Patrick. Pretty, Patrick, whatever his name was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was that guy's last name? Um, I want to say- Patrick Young. Yeah, Young. Young? Yeah. Man, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. I mean, I wish there was some game plan that I could explain to everybody that there was some- global purpose, that there was some real big business plan that we were following. Dude, we were just trying to pay the bills, yep. man. Just trying to get by. And I already had been in business six years at that point. And we were just trying to get by. And then you do remember what happened shortly after that, right? When it was just me and you? When it was just yeah. me and you. Yeah, we didn't have like to, yesterday. We didn't have enough to pay Amanda anymore. Yeah. Woody was gone. Patrick was gone. 
whoever else was gone. And then we finally let go the sort of third musketeer, Amanda, who was an amazing office manager for us because we couldn't pay her payroll anymore. Yeah, props out to Amanda Carter. <laughs> yeah, she was great. She man. was great. Still keep in touch with her. She Amanda Carter was great. Yeah. Amanda Winter at that time. Oh, yes. Yeah, Amanda Winter at that time. And, dude, we literally had to survive. And one story I remember about Tim, I remember a lot of stories about Tim, but one of them was that um, Tim was cold calling, 150 cold calls a day with a telephone. Did you have a computer on your desk? Yeah. <laughs> like an old wouldn't really, really call it a computer, but, yes, it had a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> like an old 386, yeah. right? Yes. And Tim made 150 phone calls a day out of a Yellow Pages for at least three months. At least. And then I'll never forget the day where Tim gets through to a guy at ABC Record Service in North Richland Hills, Texas, by a guy named Harvey Fornoff. And Harvey said, I'm glad you called. I'm going to replace my entire fleet. Mm-hmm. Ten trucks. And you said, you said, hey, let's go see this guy. And yeah, I, said, I said, let's I don't go. know what to do. Let's get in a truck. I told him I was going to go see him. Come on. <laughs> So we get in the car, we go to Harvey Fornoff's little bitty office, and he has these beautiful uh, tow trucks painted with American flag, and he says, I'm going to replace them all. And we did them all. We did them. We financed all of them. Do you remember how much you made on that deal? I don't remember the number, but I know it was just a perfect timing because we were I was still so new, and there was 10 trucks, and it spread over about five months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it basically gave my little... It gave me enough. Marcy didn't. Marcy basically stopped working. Yeah. My, Marcy is at the time was Tim's girlfriend, now his wife. And, uh, she f- began to feel comfortable enough, like, Oh my gosh, this could work. Yes. And so Marcy was selling flooring products mm-hmm. and you guys were living in Marcy's place in Carrollton. Yep. And, um, and she said, wow, this thing might work. I get to stop working for a little while. Right. And then we got pregnant and then you got pregnant <laughs> with Tim's daughter, Charlie. And, um, and when did you guys, you guys got married when? December? January of 2003. January of 2003. Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't realize it was that long. And then right away got pregnant with Charlie. Yeah. Honeymoon baby. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember going back to the beginning days. There was, like I said, six or seven other sales guys. And I remember asking those guys how they were doing. And some guys hadn't closed a deal like in five or six months. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, what are they doing wrong? So I started watching them, figuring out what they were doing wrong. Mm. And what they were doing wrong is they weren't making calls. Yeah. So I said, if Matt told me if I made calls, I can make this money. I started making calls. And I remember on January 1st, 2002, me, you, and Amanda were the only ones in the office. We were the only ones left standing. Do you remember what I'd said to everybody that, that December? Yeah, uh, it scared the crap out of me. You said, if you don't close $10,000 worth of business, you don't have a job here. And I remember going into your office and I said, how am I supposed to do that? And you said, it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> I still say the same thing to you. <laughs> that was the first time. I like to say in my office that Tim could walk around in a thong if he wanted to. <laughs> Nobody would care around here. I said to those guys at that time, I said, listen, you're going to hit your goals. I don't even remember what the goals were. You say it was 10,000. I have no idea what it was. You really remember it as 10 yeah, grand? Yeah, 10 grand. And 10 grand was a lot of money then. And I said to those guys, if you don't hit that number, don't show up on, Oct- on January 1st because you will not have a job. Yep. And that's how it went. So I went. And it was me and you and, and Amanda. Amanda. And then business didn't get much better for us for the rest of 2002. And we let Amanda go. And we helped Amanda get that job at TCF. You remember? Mm-hmm. I remember Jeff Wirtz called me and said, what do you think about it if I hire Amanda? And I was like, oh, I don't think she's going to move to Minnesota, but go for it. And son of a gun, he hired her and she moved to Minnesota. Yeah. And then we rebuilt. 
And do you remember that process much up until, say, 2008 when it got pretty rough again? I just remember banging the phone calls and calling customers as many as possible. And all of a sudden, the deals started coming in. And I mean, it was nothing like it is now, yeah. but it was paying the bills. But we weren't getting rich. No, there was nobody was getting rich up until that point. But what was happening is we were beginning to understand our niche. Mm-hmm. And the importance of if we commit to the niche, which for you was tow truck financing, if we commit to the niche and stop being generalists and stop searching the world for, you know, trying to be a jack of all trades and a master of none, that we actually could make a name for ourselves. And that's really what started to happen. And I would say today that we're probably one of the top three tow truck finance companies in the country. And you control that. That's your that's your baby at this Mm -hmm. company. So the first takeaway for everybody on the on the podcast today is you have to understand there are riches and niches, and being a generalist is not the way to go. Find a niche, find something you can be an expert in, and go after it. And learn as much as you can about it. And bust your ass. Mm-hmm. Make the calls, man. Tim just brought up an amazing point. I didn't know this is how you looked at it, but Tim said he started to watch what the other people weren't doing, watch their result of lack of success, and said, well, I want success. I'm going to do something different. Mm-hmm. But then, um, then in say 2010, when was the year that you ran into that little hiccup in your life? 2011. <laughs> Banner year. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story that I don't know that you, 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 you know this or not. I mean, I, I'm sure we talked about it, but I don't know if you really remember it. But, um, so long story short, Tim, Tim started hitting the bottle pretty hard. Yep. Something I know a lot about because I used to hit the bottle very hard too. I've been sober since 1997, and uh, I mean, let's be frank about it. There were times where you were bringing the you were bringing the vodka in the desk. There wasn't not times <laughs> I didn't have vodka in the desk. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's the truth. I mean, if you can, yeah, do you guys understand what we're talking about here? Literally, the vodka bottle in the desk and still performing at a high level until you got pancreatitis. Yep which is an inflammation of the pancreas almost 99% of the time directly related to boozing and drinking too much. And so the pancreatitis begins to swell and get inflamed and it becomes very painful, right? And so you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, we got something that'll take care of that. How about some pain pills? And you took the pain pills on top of the vodka. After I was in the hospital for 10 days. Well... I got to tell that though. Hold on. You skipped a little bit ahead there, buddy. We, we missed a good story. So here's how that story went. We, Tim and I were in different, different rooms in our office. So his, he was in his office. I was in my office. I hung up the, we hung up, we had a conversation. We both hung up the phone and all of a sudden I heard somebody like a dry heave, like a real loud dry heave. And our office manager at that time went running down the hallway. Because she had, she had worked for an elderly woman who used to have seizures and she knew that sound and she heard that sound and went rushing into your office and you were having a seizure at your, at your desk and you were convulsing right there at your desk. I mean, flopping around. I remember it. And, and I was trying to stabilize you and stop you from that point. I don't even know who worked for us. What do we have? Seven, eight people, nine people at that time. I don't even remember. Probably. And I remember trying to hold you down and she was screaming at me, let him have the seizure. Don't hold him down. Don't hold him down. And your, your knees were knocking against the desk and stuff. And I was like, holy shit, he might, he might really hurt himself here. But she said, let him have the seizure and called the ambulance. The ambulance came guy in. You ended up spending 10 days in a hospital. Yep. And, um, and you were working 
I was working in the hospital. I remember they set the little side, the food table up next to you and you were working your deals on the little table. I mean, what were you thinking about during that time, man? To be honest with you, I was trying to not think that I was in the hospital and I was in such denial that I thought I was okay. Yeah. So, and I knew I had bills to pay. So I kept working and working and working. I remember Marcy, my wife would come into the hospital, visit me. And I would be working and she would lay in the bed and the nurses would come in and think she was the patient. (laughs) (laughs) I got a call not too long after that from Marcy. And um, Marcy said to me that you had said to her that that you were so comfortable being a boozer and an alcoholic that you would would financially take care of Marcy and Charlie, but that you weren't going to stop. Mm-hmm. And she said, <clears throat> the only thing that's going to stop is if Tim, um, if Tim, uh, has pressure at work. And I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it like it was yesterday where we walked around the parking lot and I cried my eyes out to you, begging you to stop. You remember that? Oh, or, yeah. Or do you? No, I do. And I, I was just, I was just crying like a baby saying, please, I'm telling you, man, this is not going to finish good. All the signs are pointing in the wrong direction. And I, I was getting so emotional about it. And I remember you not getting emotional about it. And I remember saying to myself, uh-oh, he's not get- – I'm crying like a baby on this walk trying to help him. And he's not, right? Mm-hmm. And then so what happened after that? Um, that's when you and Marcy put the uh, boot on me and said <laughs> – Hold on, cowboy. There's a little bit more to it. Because a couple of days after Marcy called me, I, I'm not sure exactly. I think, let me, refer, I think this is how it went. I think Marcy called me one day and I said, I mean, I felt tremendous pressure. I didn't know exactly what to do. And I said, give me the night to think about it. And shortly after that, Big Jim called Marcy's dad, um, a big dude who has had a lot of, um, struggles with booze, mm-hmm. lost a son to a drunk driving accident and ended up getting completely sober and starting an outreach in Oklahoma. Uh, I want to talk about, I know I'm digressing a little bit, talk about a niche. It yeah. was, it was to help college athletes and other people, but he had a niche of helping college athletes that were having problems too, right? Mm-hmm. And Jim, big Jim was, um, he played on the undefeated Miami Dolphins team, which is an interesting little tidbit, but it's a, my point is it's a success. It's a guy who understands, you know, discipline and how to get straight again. And he called me that next day and said, hey, Matt, it's Big Jim. I said, hey, Jim, how you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing great, man. Listen, I just want to tell you something. Tim's going to die. And I think he'll die in the next six months. And when you and I see each other at his funeral, I want you to look me in the eye and tell me that you did everything you could to prevent it. And I hung up the phone. I called Jen and I said, you're fired. You'll be rehired when you give me the receipt from the rehab. And you called Marcy. She had the bag. And I think it was that afternoon you guys went. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I was the one all in chaos. So I don't really remember that part of the story. <laughs> but I do remember you and Marcy coming into my office, bags packed. And mm-hmm. that's when you told me mm-hmm. rehab, no job, rehab, no house, no wife, no daughter. Mm-hmm. And I've told Marcy before and I've shared my story a lot of times. And it wasn't, you know, I hate to say it, but at the time it had nothing to do with Marcy or Charlie. It was all about the job. That's the only thing I cared about because the job fed my ego. It fed everything. 
So when that, when you walked into my office and told me that that's what made me make the decision to, uh, hightail it off to rehab. And my ego was so big. And it's funny. I tell this, I tell my story to a lot of people and, uh, I thought the company was going to crumble because mm-hmm. I wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> that's how big my ego was. Yeah. Oh, what an idiot. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, I mean, the booze is, uh, is just an incredible, uh, uh, it takes hold on us and, mm-hmm. and, you know, such a fine line, right? Between having a good time with it and being on the other side of it. And it's hard for us to even remember, you know, when we crossed the line. Yeah. I don't even, I don't know when I, what happened, when it happened. Dude, you crossed the line. I crossed hard. it hard. Hard, yeah. hard man. <laughs> But the great thing is I was able to bounce back. So let's move into that direction because Tim did do his 30 days in the, uh, in the rehab mm-hmm. in Grapevine, Texas. And, um, do you, what, what was going on in the first couple of weeks when you were in there? I mean, do you, can you even go back in your memory banks or was it so cloudy? Oh no. The first few days were a little cloudy, but then the, uh, I think it was the fourth day I started looking around and, uh, looked in the mirror and realized that I was in the right place and I knew what I had turned into mm-hmm. and, when I uh, said a little prayer, yeah. said, I'm done. I need help. And that was the first time I'd actually asked for help. And uh, So did you changing. ask for help to God or did you to ask God. for help for the people there too? Or you just asked for help for everybody? I said a prayer and asked help to God. Mm-hmm. And then I remember specifically waking up because for so long, probably for six or seven months, the first thing I'd wake up in the morning was thinking of a drink. Oh my gosh. And first I, couple months afterwards. No, the, well, the first six months, the six months up to rehab. Oh, okay, okay. And then even the first few days in rehab, that's why I was thinking about how I can get out of here. How can oh I get a drink? God. And then that one on the fourth day, I uh, had a little epiphany and realized who I had become. Yeah. And I said a prayer to God and said, I'm just done. I need help. Please help me. And I've never asked anybody for help. And I mm. definitely never asked him for help me stop drinking. And I remember that next morning I woke up and I didn't think about drinking. Mm. Mm. So... I know God's out there and he does miracles and he took that, took that away from me. And after that, it was just a uh, full steam ahead doing whatever anybody told me to do. But I took the same process that I took when I first started working with you about seeing people do the wrong thing and not succeed. I looked around at the rehab and I saw a lot of people there on their second, third, fourth times in rehab. What are they doing to keep coming back here? Mm-hmm. And I did the exact opposite. So I yeah. started doing exactly what the counselor said. I got honest with myself and. And you started going to meetings. Started going to meetings. And those meetings were really important, right? Oh, they still are. They still are. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an unbelievable. I mean, it's just such an unbelievable memory to actually go back and think. And that was, that was only six years ago. That's 2012. It feels like it was a lifetime yeah. ago. I'm telling you, it feels so long ago. Yeah. You walked in my office January 25th, 2012. Was that it? It's my sobriety date. Holy shit. That's incredible. Well, then, then guess what happens? We end up, I mean, all of it happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. All of it. But there's such unbelievable tests of character, all of those things. And I go back to my opening statements that for those people who say it's just business, it's not just business, man. There's more to it. If you're working in a company that says it's just business or your mindset tells you it's just business, I'm telling you it's more than that. It is more than just business to be, to be truly successful and happy. So then we, then we really start to crank it up, right? Yeah. I mean, then it really starts to, to hit. I don't Focus. know what, you, I don't know what your income level was at that point, but you know, it wasn't where it is today no. and not even close, nor was mine. And I, to be frank with you, 
I think it's straight for both of us to agree, as we've talked about before, that no one could have ever told us that we would make the income that we make. Is that fair to say? Oh, by far. <laughs> I would have laughed. I did laugh. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's totally impossible. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, I wasn't put on this earth to make that much money. Yeah. A message for the audience. Yeah, you can. If you start to do the right stuff, the successful habits. One is you got to watch what other people are doing wrong and don't do it. Mm-hmm. Figure out not, everyone says you got to figure out what everybody's doing right. You know what you, sometimes you got to do? You got to figure out what they're doing wrong yep. and then just stop doing it. Second thing I think without question is you got to get your head right around the booze and the drugs. I mean, I just don't know any super successful guy or gal who, who lives juiced up and pickled. I just don't know it. Yeah, not for long. Sooner or later, yeah. every single one of them ends up crashing. And, um, and then in your situation, you reached out for help. You turned to God and your, your meetings. Um, and then you ended up developing these incredible friendships with these guys too, right? Because isn't it fair to say that in some of your groups, you were like, holy shit, that guy was really successful too. Yeah. I mean, these guys weren't like down on their luck, you know, hobos. These guys were really successful yeah. people in your groups. Yep. What did that do? What were you thinking about? I mean, did that, did that add fuel to it that, wow, this guy was successful. He crashed and burned, but he's successful again. Was that fuel for you? Oh yeah. There's a saying in AA that says, um, um, I want what they have. So I picked a couple guys in the group that I could see were successful in AA and they've been sober for a while. I started asking them, what do you yeah. do? What's the, what's the you process? started leaning on them. started leaning on them. Mm-hmm. And basically they became my mentors, mm-hmm. not in sobriety as well as, you know, business. Yeah. And I took that motivation and desire and focus, yeah. not having to worry about going to drink at lunch or do this or that or what I'm going to do at night and put it all into work mm-hmm. and family. You know, mm-hmm. we start taking off after that. I mean, really, we start to really take off and things start to get uh, much better. How how during during this past the recovery time? I mean, let's just call it the relaunch. Right. Mm-hmm. How did you keep that focus? How did you keep that intensity that you still to this day have? I come in every day broke. <laughs> That's my mantra. I do. But you didn't live above your means never the house that you and marcy bought which you guys are getting ready to sell now Mm -hmm. after how many years 13 i mean i used to we used to joke and i would say dude you you're in such a tough spot because if you ever told any of your friends how much money you make they wouldn't believe you because you because of the neighborhood you live in right not a bad neighborhood or anything but it's it's a it's a starter neighborhood Mm -hmm. by the way starter neighborhood now is selling for what three something 330 330 is what a starting neighborhood is and you paid 180. So, so for those of you who think the money hasn't moved, the money's moved. Yeah. The starter neighborhood 11 years ago, 13 years 13. ago was 180. And today that house is going to sell for 330. Did you hear what I just said though? I mean, if you're listening to me, listen, this, this is a guy who makes money he could live anywhere. And he was living in a house that cost him 180. And what was the mortgage on it? The, I mean, what was the debt service on it at the end? Nothing, right? Nothing. Yeah. So. Anything is possible. So your focus and your intensity, which is, which is such, it's in the 0.001 percentile of anyone on the planet, the way that you work broke. It is unbelievable to see it. And it's a testament that anybody can do it. But how, what is the, the biggest advice you would say to somebody, Tim, who's struggling with their money situation, not in their mindset for success? They want to be successful, but they can't get the needle of their money moving. What do you say to them? I guess it just depends on what they're doing. I mean, if they're in sales, then 
like you said earlier, find your niche and become a master of it, mm-hmm. you know, and do whatever you can to get that business. But what about saving the money? I mean, how about, I mean, you guys. You got to save. You got to save 25% of your check every week. 25%. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bare minimum. Yeah. It's an absolute bare minimum. I'm telling you that bullshit of save 10%, you'll retire poor, 15, you'll retire middle class and 20%, you'll retire rich. It's bullshit. Yeah. 25% is the minimum. 25% number. minimum. Yeah. And so you guys stacked and racked cash. Loved the fact that your your house wasn't a burden to you financially and all that. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Never went out and bought super fancy cars, nope. but certainly didn't didn't you didn't eat rice and beans either, like Dave Ramsey talks. About. Oh no, no, we oh, lived. you guys lived. We traveled. We did all sorts of stuff. I mean, we lived. And then your first big purchase, when you really said, "I can afford it," was was the lake house. Blake's house. Oh, shit. <laughs> Tell the story of Blake's house. So I wanted a lake house for about eight years. Um, my wife's deceased brother's name's Blake, and my wife, Marcy, has always had a heart for helping people. It comes from her parents. Um, so long story short, she became involved with the foster system and realized that there was no place once a girl turned out of, turned out, turned 18 in the state of Texas, they had nowhere to go. Uh, the foster families no longer got paid. And the girls were just on their own. So we bought a house in Plano that'll hold four to five girls. And uh, Marcy will find them, bring them in, teach them basics, how to cook, how to clean, how to keep a job, how to do a budget, how to get into school. And uh, so that was our big first big project purchase. When you guys bought Blake's house, Blake's house was actually more expensive than the house you lived in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was nicer. It was nicer, man. And more expensive, though. And more expensive. I mean, you know, we will do more for others than we will do for ourselves. Yeah, that's another way to succeed. It is. One one thing that most people don't know of and, and you know, you don't talk about it, but you got you charge those girls rent, right? We do. And then what what is the most amazing thing is when the girls leave, you guys give them the money back. Yep. So so you're forced to pay to learn the lesson. Keep to save. Keep to save, keep to put roof over your mm-hmm. heads, earn to put a roof over your head. And then unbeknownst to the girls, when they leave, you and Marcy give them the accumulation of that rent back. Yep. So they have a little nest egg. So they're not on their own. Could be a couple thousand. Could be a couple thousand. Could be six or seven thousand. Six or seven grand. You give it back to yeah. them. So, and we make them pay, I think it's maybe 20, 30% of their income goes to rent. Mm-hmm. So it keeps teaches them to live off what that number should that be. number should be. Yeah, and then you give them the money back, mm-hmm. so they start their lives with probably more money than they ever had in a bank account again, and all these skills. Yes, such an unbelievable thing. It's just an incredible thing. Blake's house named after Marcy's mm-hmm. brother who died. Blake'shouse.org. Think about it. Look it up. Blake'shouse.org. That's big, dude. So you got me so caught up on the on the resurgence and how we were doing so well. I forgot about the fact that really part of the reason you've done so well is because of that and and the ability to give back like that. But let's get to the lake house. Yes. Right? So so you get you get Blake's house now. Blake's house is all funded, staffed, mm-hmm. painted, furnished, filled. And then what do you say to Marcy? One day we're going to go back to that lake house. Now? Yes. And when did you buy the lake house? Uh, April of 2016. Wow, it's been that long already? A little over a year and a half. Yeah. Nice lake house. Nice lake house. <laughs> yeah. Much nicer than your house that you were living in. 
different. It's a night. I mean, it's right on the Dude, lake. It was like four times. It was three times the amount of your house. Yeah, but it's right on the lake. <laughs> you got my own dock. It's eighteen hundred square feet, so it's not a super large house, but it is beautiful. I always play catch up with Tim when he bought the new boat. He well, he bought a used boat. I had to go buy a better yeah. used boat, not better than yours, but better than mine, right? Yeah. And I, it's just funny. I mean, it's like it's like you tell me that it's possible to afford a two thousand and six wake setter, and I'm like, okay, well maybe I could buy a nicer <laughs> boat then. So, Bazer said he can do it. It's, it. We can afford it, dude. That's living broke. Yeah. All these freaking guys going out there buying $125,000 Mastercraft. I'm trying to figure out how can, how can I, how can I do a $21,000 four wins? Can I afford it? Yeah. Starter boats. I'm talking to this insurance girl today and, and, and she's building me out this, this, uh, insurance plan and she comes back and presents it today and she's like, um, yeah. So here we have it. Uh, it's got a 21,000, $21 million death benefit. And uh, it'll only be $200,000 a year for you to fund it. And I'm like, $200,000 a year to fund this thing? And she's like, yeah, you can afford $200,000. Uh, did I say $200,000 a month? No, I you said a year. Yeah, yeah, $200,000 yeah. a year, she said. So it's like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 a month, right? Something like that. And I'm like, I, I don't write checks for $15,000 a month for anything. And she's like, yes, you do. You write them all the time. You write them every day in your office. What are you talking about? She's like, come on, you got to think about this as an investment. Anyway, I just, it's, it is an affordable number, but it's such a, it's such a crazy number to think about it like yeah. that. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. listen, at the end of the day, wouldn't it be nice if Rocky, if I croak in a couple of years and Rocky gets 21 mil? Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Right. Just got to watch your back. Dude, I'm a die early. <laughs> I already know. It. My real dad died at 61. I'm yeah. a die early, but no, we did that a long time ago. So Marcy has a uh, nest egg. And the part of the, we're going back to the recovery story. She called our insurance provider and said, Hey, if he dies because of the booze, do I get the money? And they said, yes. Yeah. Look, man. I mean, by the way, I, I have a very substantial life insurance policy for Rocky and the boys, but, uh, this agent who I trust, by the way, she's not trying to sell me anything. I know her from, I mean, Rick Sapio. I trust this mm-hmm. girl. Uh, she's like, you're grossly underinsured, right? She's like, you don't have enough insurance. So she thinks the number's 21 million in insurance. That's, that, that would be appropriately insured, whatever. So the lake house happens. Great decision. Fantastic decision. Quality family time. Mm -hmm. But what about the ability to appreciate your hard work through that lake house? Do you get that? Oh, yes. When you get out there, there, you say to yourself, wow, it's, it's materializing. It's happening, Mm -hmm. you know? But you don't look back and remember the yellow Jeep or the green Honda. I mean, you're not. The 1990 Lexus that I was donated to me. <laughs> my big jump. Yeah, my big jump. <laughs> I think it's a key takeaway, man. Don't spend much time looking back on, yeah. on where you came from. It doesn't mean shit. Mm-hmm. The focus is where you're going and do you like who you are today, right? And you can change. Yep. You You are a testament of that. You know, you're also a testament as I think I am too, that, um, listen, it's not always straight up. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means maybe you let some shit creep in that maybe shouldn't have creeped in, Mm -hmm. you know, and, but then you have the strength to get over it. That's the key thing too. You don't have to be down just because you get kicked in the ass doesn't mean you got to stay down and you did it and you're my friend. Thank you. Rocky's sister-in-law used to say, you're my friend (laughs) from Arkansas. You're my friend. (laughs) But you are my friend, man. And together we have built this company and we've done some unbelievable things, of course, in our own lives. Mm -hmm. But as you know, 
And as a key driving force for both of us, we've done a lot of stuff for other people too. Yeah. Clients, mm-hmm. dealers, employee, coworkers. It all comes around. It all comes around. And there's a lot more to go, buddy. Yeah. So I appreciate you being on the podcast, telling your story. Yep. Thanks my, for having me. As my friend Tim Bazer, go to blakeshouse.org if you want to learn more about what's going on over there. Again, thanks for the reviews, all the positive energy that's moving us forward on this, and I'll see you down the road. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.